Hey there, product lovers. Welcome to the Product Love Podcast, hosted by Eric Bodick, co-founder and chief evangelist of Pendo and super fan of all things product. Product Love is the place for real insights into the world of crafting products as Eric interviews founders, product leaders, venture capitalists, authors, and more. So let's dive in now with today's Product Love podcast. Welcome over to Product. Today, I'm here with Albert Saniger, who's the founder and CEO of Nate. Albert, why don't you kick this off by giving us uh, an overview of your background? Thanks, Eric, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So a little bit about me. I'm Spanish originally, although I grew up in France. So Spanish and French were my first two languages, and then I moved to the States. I built a career as a founder with many failed companies, luckily, like fast failures. And then I also worked at Amazon doing private label strategy for their soft lines division. And I founded Nate two and a half years ago. So talk to me about how you first got into tech. Oh, love that question. So if you think of tech as a series of skill sets, when I was nine years old, I started coding in a language that is now pretty much dead. It was called Pascal. Then I started coding C++. And then I went to college and majored in math and computer science. Although halfway through, I realized that my entire bandwidth was being taken by that. And I wanted a you know, social life. So I changed my major to political philosophy, <laughs> primarily to have something to talk about in social environments that wasn't recursive algorithms. And I ended up starting a fashion company, which had nothing to do with uh, either major. But if you think of tech as an industry, after a company I had founded exited, I made a little bit of cash and I went to business school. And so then I used the business school cloud to get a job in big tech, which in this case was Amazon. And Amazon was the most natural transition because of my prior background in, in e-commerce. So that's kind of how I got into tech, I guess. Yeah. Talk to me about the, well, well first, <laughs> interestingly, I considered myself one of the best Pascal programmers. I mean, I was awesome. But this is like 30 years ago. I don't know if I could write any today. I don't know that it has any value at all today. Well, you and I can start a Pascal club. How about that? We, we could. We could, probably. Uh, that was the peak of my programming prowess. <laughs> but uh, tell me, how, how did you get into Amazon? You know, uh, well, tell me about, sorry, not as much how you got into Amazon. Tell me about the Amazon experience, like what it was like working there, what it was like from you coming out of business school, you know, having a, a diverse background. Talk to me about that. I had a blast at Amazon. I learned so much. And keep in mind, I had never had a job before. I mean, I had many companies, as I mentioned, you know, one of them made me a little bit of cash. So I was, you know, comfortable enough to make some, take some risks in my career. And I chose a really interesting and nimble team, which was, you know, working on deciding which brands to launch and which price points and in which categories. And it was quite the journey because I got to meet a ton of people, at different parts of Amazon. Amazon is, I always thought before that it's a massive company, but in fact, it's more like thousands of small companies. So I felt that I was in a startup within Amazon and I really enjoyed that. Although, you know, at the end of the day, I realized that I'm a founder and in hindsight, it makes sense because both of my parents are founders. But back then I thought, no, I, I need to like grow up and get a job. And so that was kind of my reasoning for joining Amazon. And then I realized, you know what? I can do this. You know, I'm ready. I'm going to do this again. I, I started Nate. So tell us about Nate. You know, talk to me about the launch experience, what problem you were trying to solve and where it is today. All right. So interestingly, all of the problems that we're solving at Nate are in a way new 
and built on top of the first problem that I actually wanted to address. And so back in the day when I started, I had a much simpler brain than most people realize when they speak with me. When I was at Amazon, I had observed the buy now button and I became fascinated with it. And then I heard also about plans that Amazon had to launch the Amazon Go store, which is this epic experience where you you know walk into the store, you grab a salad and you walk out or you know you want a drink, you walk back in, you grab the drink and you walk back out. So there, there's no checkout. And I thought to myself, this is the future. The future of checkout is no checkout whatsoever. And so I asked myself, how can I get ahead of it and build the world's first skip the checkout solution that truly works everywhere else? Because Amazon is 50% of US e-com, but what do we do with the other 50%? And so Nate has solved this problem. And while I know that in a way we're just getting started, we have less than 50 people working at Nate full-time right now, I could not be more proud of what we've accomplished in the last two years. So Nate is the world's first and only universal checkout experience. Awesome. So tell me about your experience now at Nate. What teams do you oversee? So at Nate, I oversee, I mean, we have like five teams at Nate. We have tech, product, marketing, finance, and operations. And that's vertical. And then horizontal, we divide our work into acquisition, conversion, retention, and monetization. So I oversee all teams, vertical and horizontal, but my job changes on a quarter by quarter basis because of the nature of my role as a founder. So right now I contribute the most, most likely to, I'd say product, legal and fundraising decisions. And you say that changes a lot. Like I, I talked to a lot of, you know, founders that obviously have a strong product background. So they're kind of, you know, driving product throughout the startup, at, at least to a, a certain level, but yours varies quarter to quarter more. Yeah, exactly. I'm not good at anything, actually. Uh, I'm good enough at enough things to not break them and then find someone who is much better than I am at doing those things. So product is probably the the last function that I will kind of fire myself from. But yeah, I'm ultimately, I am a, a junkie. I'm basically addicted to finding people who are 10 times better than I am at something that I'm doing and then firing myself from that. I think that's a good role for a CEO, right? Yeah, for sure. It's definitely a good role for a founder. There's also this transition that happens that I'm starting to sense that it'll it'll happen very soon. It'll be like a one to two year transition from founder mindset to CEO mindset, but because the Nate team is starting to kind of shape up nicely. And so there are only so many areas that I can fire myself from eventually. But yeah, uh, I think it's a very healthy mindset. It's also a very humbling one because when you meet someone who basically you're interviewing and they're telling you all the things that you shouldn't be doing and why the job that you're doing is, you know, could be optimized, it's always fascinating, you know, because then I have this like feeling of, oh my God, I really need to, you know, hire this person right now. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So there's one thing I wanted to dig into that you just mentioned, the, the founder mindset versus the CEO mindset. Explain what you meant by that. So I see the role of a founder as a series of firing yourself decisions, right? In no particular order, you mentioned you speak with people who decide to drive product for longer or marketing for longer or tech for longer or finance for longer and so on. And so, you know, a good framework would be to fire yourself first from the things that you're worst at, but a different way of approaching it is to fire yourself first that 
uh, you have more readily available talent for, or a different way of looking at it are finding yourself from the areas that are, you know, in terms of like importance versus urgency framework. So analyzing it from that perspective, it's almost like I gave it to you as a binary founder mindset versus CEO mindset, but I think it's probably three stages. So the first stage is a gut feeling driven stage where a lot of the decisions are made in uncertainty and darkness. And there are very few people other than a founder who can make those decisions. And then once you start operationalizing some processes in that team, then you can, you know, kind of start replacing yourself and you enter phase two. And phase two is a phase where it's data informed. So it's not quite data driven yet, right? So it's data informs you have a hypothesis and then you can validate it or invalidate it quickly. And then you need a different kind of person for it. So that's the transition phase. And then phase three is kind of a data-driven world, right? And so if you think about it, the transition from founder mindset to CEO mindset is taking all the functions of the company from gut feeling driven to data-driven. Understand. So, how about you? How does that end up affecting you know your area of responsibility as you fully transition to like the CEO you know role away from the founder role? Uh, yeah. I mean, obviously, you give up some of these functional areas that you had, if not run directly, been actively involved in, or at least in the weeds, so to speak, down in the details to to some level. How do you feel like your your role evolves as, after you've fired yourself from just about everything, so to speak? Yeah. So that's a good question. Well, uh, I'm yet to see the full extent of it. Uh, We'll talk in a year and I'll give you a more accurate answer. But for now, I definitely see some differences between different functions. So there are some areas in which I started as an individual contributor and then became a manager and then became a manager of managers. And, And so when you reach that kind of level three of management in that function, then I basically just get updates. I get fortnightly updates from about what's going on. And I do my best and I'll become a blocker for the speed at which they move. So there's some additional processes by which if there's an important decision that needs to be made, or if there's a decision that is still not, we don't have all the information yet about it, and it requires someone making a call in uncertainty, then I will be brought back in for that decision. And then I'll step out again and I'll hear the details of the next uh, fortnightly update, I guess. Okay. So let's jump into a little bit more about Nate. You know, talk to me about how retail tech's changing, what you see as the emerging trends there, how is AI involved? And yeah, let's start there. I'm throwing a ton at you. So let's start with that. Uh, and then oh gosh, that's a lot. Yeah, 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 for sure. I mean, AI is everywhere right now. I remember the days when AI used to be a sector in its own, right? And now it's become a key part of so many companies and so many industries. And a couple of areas that are exciting to me right now as it relates to retail or commerce is there's a lot going on in augmented reality and, and virtual reality, which Nate does not do. But I see a lot of new ways for consumers to interact with products in the early stages of their buying intention journeys, like virtual showrooms and, and similar experiences. And the second example is that I'm actually more excited about even than this is distribution centers are getting smarter and enable Amazon style shipping, which is like quick and single package, even if the consumer has bought three items on three different stores. Interesting. So there's a few things I want to jump into from there, but let me step back for a second. And as you, you know, you talk about 
you know, AR and VR, and, and I'll, I'll definitely jump down that path for a little bit. And I'd like to hear about how logistically they manage that shipping approach. But maybe we should step back to Nate. Like, you know, Nate's one of those, you know, kind of cool things for retail tech. Why do you think Nate's so important? Like what Nate does, why is that so important for retail tech? Nate was never built with the kind of e-commerce ecosystem in mind. Nate was built with human psychology in mind. So we basically said, you know, we don't care how all of these, you know, publishers, affiliates, merchants, brands, retailers, and infrastructure companies, payment processors, everyone who's somehow, or logistics companies, everyone who's somehow involved in this chain, hopefully we're value accretive to them, but we don't care about their motivations or incentives right now. We care about what does the long-term future look like and what does a consumer want? And that is a very healthy and easier problem to solve in a way because you're just looking at what do people want? And what people want is when they see something and they want it, they want it right away and they don't want to deal with any additional drama. And so that is what Nate has provided. So when you ask Nate to buy something for you, it takes you three clicks, five seconds, you can buy anything in the web and you don't have to worry about checking out anymore. And so that I think is transformational for the consumer that up until now, people have been kind of redirected to take different paths. Like now you have to visit this website because this person wants the traffic or the click. Now you have to enter your email here and then you will get another, you know, $1 off or whatever. And then we'll collect your data and we'll do this. And then there are all those like micro decisions that add up and they're very taxing for the human brain. I mean, I know for me, <laughs> I always, if I find something I want to buy at a new website where I don't have an account, there's like that added hurdle where like, can't I really just buy this from Amazon? And yeah. if I can't, then I'm like, do I really want to go through the effort of setting up another account, managing that? And then God forbid, like a password gets hacked or something. And I have like, you know, passwords I got to go change or and all this, you know, kind of stuff. Because let's be honest, we tend to share passwords. We don't have a unique password for the 5,000 different places we have accounts. So we definitely share them at least across some accounts. So then all of a sudden you're like, oh, is this worth the hassle of going through the process of working with this vendor? Because it's not just like walking into a retail store, you know, and just flashing your credit card and tapping it against the system and, you know, your purchase is done. It's definitely a level of effort. So I've been through that. I've done that, that justification. I recently, I went through an exercise at the beginning of the year where basically for the last two years, I have not checked out on a single website on my own, meaning manually with my fingers. But I was still buying certain things from Amazon, which I don't consider that checking out because there's a buy now button that I love. And so I was doing some of my purchases on Amazon and the rest of the purchases, I was asking Nate to buy them for me. And I, I went through this exercise of how can I de-Amazon? What are the other things that I need to do in order to completely de-Amazon? And for the last two and a half months or so, I guess since the beginning of the year, I have completely de-Amazon now. So I'm like, anything I buy, I buy on Nate instead of Amazon. Interesting. So let's talk about AR, VR. You know, that was another trend you talked about. When? When do you think that's going to change? Like, when is that going to change how we interact with things? It's been a promise for a long time, right? And I feel like the tech is starting to get there in some ways, but there's still hurdles. What do you think? I think brands have been on a several-year journey of rethinking how they interact with consumers and increasing the number of channels that they either sell 
or talk to consumers in, which is a mix of, you know, the Amazon marketplace, Instagram shopping, now perhaps like TikTok shopping or their own direct-to-consumer website, retail stores, you name it. And increasingly, especially over the last year, they've been forced to kind of accelerate other ways in which they can provide the, the consumer with more information about that product that is not just a product page with a few images. And so I see a few brands that are investing in AR and VR for consumers to make more informed decisions. And one that comes to mind that did it quite well last year was Apple. So when I bought my new iPhone, I wanted to see it and I didn't want to go to the store. And so instead, what I did was use my prior iPhone and I used augmented reality to kind of position the new iPhone in my hand and, and see how it would feel. And then I, I turned it and I looked at the details and you know it wasn't the exact same as feeling the iPhone physically, but it definitely gave me enough conviction that then I decided to buy the new iPhone, right? And there are a few companies doing similar experiences, especially in, in fashion and beauty. So I think that's just going to continue. I'm not that bullish on it necessarily. Like I'm not telling you people are going to stop going to physical experiences. I think people are really excited to see products and other humans kind of in person again. But I, I certainly observe the trend and it's not going to get any smaller. Yeah, I like the AR part of it in particular because, you know, if I'm buying a lamp or I'm buying furniture, it'd be great to see the lamp on my desk or, you know, the furniture in the room I'm going to buy it for. You know, those kinds of experiences I, I think are, are natural fits. The clothing shopping is a whole nother one where like trying to get it in a VR environment where like you would see how it actually fits on you is a whole nother challenge that feels in some ways almost insurmountable. The other thing we talked about was, was shipping, right? I guess because of the pandemic, I, I feel like we're a little more cognizant of it in some ways, you know, the problems around shipping, you know, some of the food delivery services. I know personally, I ended up, you know, quitting because there's a huge amount of packaging. And I feel like even with Amazon, when I'm ordering things, you know, through that buy now button or otherwise, it's like I get stuff that shows up every day where I'd be happy if I got like one box once a week sometimes, you know, but now you're talking about like this whole idea of consolidating shipping for multiple vendors. Talk to me about how that changes things. So if this is something that Amazon has been working on for a while. So you'll notice that if you buy three different items on Amazon within a 24-hour period, there is a solid chain that two out of those three items come in the same box. Now, it doesn't happen all the time because sometimes those items are placed in different physical distribution centers, but when they can, they do it. And of course, only a company like Amazon is able to have the scale and the data and to create that intelligence to offer that experience to users. But there are infrastructure companies that are enabling that similar experience to retailers and brands who don't want to control the entire logistics experience for the consumer. And so if brands get and other retailers get more comfortable with the box not being uh, branded, then they can sign up for these services that are, you know, multi-brand and multi-retailer distribution centers that get smarter and smarter. So think about it as, you know, Amazon has the Amazon marketplace model, which basically the brand still owns the stock and just pays a fee to Amazon for selling on Amazon. But there's a subset of that, which is called MFN, that basically allows that brand to ship the inventory to Amazon. It is still owned by the brand, meaning the brand only gets paid 
when the, the customer buys it, but it is in an Amazon distribution center, and therefore the consumer can use their Prime account to get faster shipping as a result, also for marketplace items. So similar to the Amazon MFN model, I imagine companies like Shopify will be going into distribution center business and, and logistics business and offer a MFN-like experience for their merchants. Sounds really cool. Let's jump back to AI. You know, we talked about AI and how it's influencing retail tech. Talk to me about, you know, some of the downsides of AI when it comes to retail, because we've all heard stories, you know, tell me, tell me one of the stories you've heard and then what do we need to do to combat that? And how do you talk to your teams about, you know, using AI more responsibly? My gosh. Yeah, I actually do have a story. Well, the, the overarching theme is I think there's way too much going on in the world of predictive intelligence specifically. And, and this story is an industry friend who I can't name told me that there is a company in China that can predict with 90% accuracy what someone is going to buy 48 hours before they buy it. And if it looks like they won't buy it, they start blasting them with ads until it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. So that story to me, I mean, it's still mind-blowing. I knew this world would eventually come and I was scared that it would come, but just to see that it's already happening is crazy. And so I actually asked him, I said, so what happens when the consumer doesn't buy it? Because apparently they start shipping the package from one side of China to the other side of China in order to offer quick delivery. If it's the, the package is in one distribution center, they start shipping it before the customer has bought it. And so I said, what happens if it, the customer doesn't buy it? And they said, oh, the, the package stops at the last distribution center and then it gets rerouted, but it's still worth to start shipping the package ahead of time, especially with this degree of accuracy. And, and there's enough. And then you do the math of how much should we spend on ads to make sure that this customer actually ends up buying it. And so there's an in-between that it actually makes it worth it for the company, which is insane. So in theory, there's some good that should come out of algorithm recommendations. But in practice, I believe it's doing more harm than good. So at Nate, for example, we take a really strong stance against algorithms curating your world. If that's for you, by all means, you know, spend the time in platforms that use your data to curate your world. However, it doesn't matter how you get to the decision of buying something, basically. Whenever you made the decision to buy something, then Nate will be here to do the checkout. Whether you decided for yourself or you had an algorithm decide for you, Nate will be here to do the checkout. But at Nate, as a platform, you will never be spammed with stuff. Instead, we promote human-to-human -human inspiration. So an example of that is you can build lists on Nate. You can create a list and add any products from any website in the world. And then share that list with friends who can follow it and buy things directly from it if they want to. So you can get that inspiration, but it's, it's driven by another human who is a friend of yours who has to share that list with you. And then when you, when you share with Nate and then hit buy, then we use AI to navigate websites intelligently and complete the checkout on your behalf. So broadly speaking, I think AI should be used less in the discovery phase and more in the checkout payments and logistics space. Because if we delegate the decision-making to machines, then what does it mean to be human after all? <laughs> That's a very meta question that uh, we might have to address at a different time. <laughs> but that could be a long conversation. So other things that come up, security, privacy, you know, what, what are you guys doing around that? And what role does AI play in that? I'm a privacy junkie. I'm one of those people that 
I delete my browser history all the time. I delete the cookies. I'm like always, you know, in private mode. I try to not have that much, you know, digital footprint about my life. And unless it's harming my lifestyle, in which case I sometimes give in. I try to be as limited as I can with information that other companies own about me. About Nate specifically, when you buy something online, well, outside of Nate in general, when you buy something online, it's not just you and the store that keeps that information. It's also often your browser, your bank, the credit card network, the payment processor, the fraud prevention service, and the list goes on, right? So there's a ton of companies out there and you're agreeing to the terms of service that say, by buying this, you are agreeing that all of these people are going to own all of this information. And I have seen examples where a consumer buys a $10 toothbrush, but the very fact that they're buying that toothbrush is actually worth $20 of information. And so in a way, you should be paid, if, if all these companies are retaining this information, you should be paid $10 to buy that toothbrush. Otherwise, you should own that data. So when you buy with Nate, we actually issue a virtual card for every transaction. Some people have this service and they go through the, the hassle of generating the virtual card themselves every time that they want to buy something online. At Nate, that is completely automated. So you don't have to deal with that. We issue it every time. And we effectively pay for that item. And then we debit your bank account directly. But on your bank account statement, it simply says Nate. So if you want to check your purchase history, you can always see it in the Nate app and do things like one click buy again, for example. But at least you know that your data is not leaving the app. We do not sell your data and we do not use it to show you ads or recommendations or do predictive intelligence. So at Nate, we're entirely aligned with you as a consumer and primarily just here to help. And that's also why we charge for our services because unlike many consumer products out there, our users are also our customers. So there's one thing you uh, you said that uh, I wanted to dig a little bit farther into. Uh, so I was gonna ask you, you know, and I will ask you about how you got that product market fit with Nate. But, but first you did mention that you've given in to some where you've, you know, enabled them to, understand a little bit more about who you are and, and have a bigger digital footprint. What did you give into and why? Okay. So for example, I, there are some companies that I trust. I, I really trust Apple, for example. And so I have very purposely trained the Apple TV homepage algorithm to show me certain pieces of content that I know I'll be more interested in. But it was a very proactive approach. It was like, okay, for the first few days, I'm going to enter these shows, watch them for this amount of time. Then I'll enter those shows and I'll watch this amount of time. Then I'll watch this movie, then that movie, then that movie. And now I feel great about it. I literally like every time I want to watch something and I want to explore something new, I open the Apple TV app and there's always content for me out there. So I was very intentional about that. So I guess I, I didn't necessarily give in. I was like intentional about it. I was like, you know what? I'm going yeah, to explain, yeah. explain this algorithm. I wasn't um, saying you were tricked. I mean, you no, did yeah. it knowingly. Yeah, I did it knowingly. Exactly. And then there are some examples where I do the complete opposite. So for example, on YouTube, I will always browse logged out and I delete the app often. And I also sometimes change my IP address. And then once a year, I change my phone. So that changes the device. So you know, you there's less and less identifiers. I'm guessing Google has a m much harder time understanding who I am as a consumer than Apple, which I trust. 
I also had this crazy experience when I was in business school. I went, I'm not on, on any Facebook products. And when personally though, as a company, we are on, on Instagram, for example, and we have a ton of fun, but as Albert, I'm not on Instagram or Facebook. And when I was in business school, we went to the Facebook campus and we, was just, we had to do this tour. And, and then I realized when I was there that the only way to access the Facebook campus was to kind of log in with your Facebook account. So it was like, identify yourself and then you can go through it. I don't know if that has changed or that was a, my experience only, but I can definitely tell you that that happened. And I got there and I had no profile, right? So I couldn't go in and they had to create a profile for me. So I know that Facebook somehow has a profile that says Albert Saniger. And I don't know if there's a password to it. I have no idea, but I managed to do a tour, but they had to create a profile for me. That's pretty funny. So back, back to Nate, talk to me about finding product market fit. Interestingly, I look at some founders look at product market fit as a series of like answers from consumers about how unhappy they would be if the product disappeared in their lives. And that is an output metric that you can measure, but it doesn't necessarily break the problem down for you to know which actions you have to take. So I see product market fit as a series of feature market fit decisions. So I look at what is Nate going to look like in a few years from now, and I can predict that some of these, what we call features, will be entire products on their own. And we'll have, you know, different product managers, different teams that push updates. And so if I consider that as a product on its own, then product market fit for Nate as a consumer app is an aggregation of product market fit on a feature-by-feature basis. And so at Nate, we have... I mean, there's a ton of things we do, but they can be bucketed into three aspects of the consumer value curve. The first one is activity, which is basically section of the app where you get notified of other things that are happening around you. Second is lists, which is like Pinterest 2.0, basically. You can build any list that you want with a bunch of products, has images, you share them with friends, you can follow them and buy things from them. The third one is gifts which is this idea that you should be able to send a gift to anyone without having their address. So instead of saying, hey, what's your latest address? Can I send you a gift? You can just go on Nate and then tap ship to a friend and that instead of entering a shipping address, that generates a link and you can paste that link onto a conversation, like a text message, iMessage or Instagram DM conversation. We also have buy now, which is the feature I mentioned earlier, which is, you know, skip the checkout. Then privacy, discounts, and one more that, will be announced in a few weeks. And so all of those things have to reach product market fit on their own. And instead of us measuring, you know, the entire product, basically, because otherwise you launch something new and it could pollute the data of your entire product. So if you break it into a feature by feature, then at least you have a more visibility over how people are behaving with those. Yeah, I was going to try to get the, the new announcement out of you that you're announcing in a couple of weeks. But then I, I realized that by the time this thing publishes anyways, it's going to be already announced. It's, you know, this will be like six or eight weeks from now. So uh, okay, whatever's new is there. So if you want to pitch it, you can. Okay, let's do it. So Nate is launching pay later. So you'll be able to finance any transaction. So for the first time, you know, point of sale financing is actually going to be universal and not dependent on whether that merchant has you know, all these point of sale financing solutions that exist out there. So you can buy anything in the world with Nate, but you can also split the payment in four without fees or interest. Awesome. That's pretty cool. So now Nate, I'm assuming it's already there. You can now pay later with Nate. 
Awesome. So talk to, talk to me about the culture at Nate. What, what's it like working there? I imagine it has a pretty interesting culture just based upon both you and the nature of your product. So what's the company culture, the product culture like, and how have you kind of merged those two things together? Like how do you rally your company, you know, around your product offering? There are, at Nate, we have, you know, a little bit under 50 people full-time and there are 25 different nationalities five religions and all sorts of gender identities. And so those are just some of the things that basically indicators of the kind of company that we are. We live by five principles, primarily. The first one is self-care isn't selfish. The second one is disagreeing is healthy. The third one is make true promises. The fourth one is forgiveness or permission. And the fifth one is always look forward. And everyone at Nate lives by those five principles. Performance reviews are always related to those five principles. And we tend to check each other often. Sometimes we go, hey, like you need to take care of yourself more. Or, hey, like you shouldn't, don't need to ask for permission on this. Just go and do it. So that is the the comedy culture. Or at least those are some principles that give you a glimpse of the culture because the culture is a mix of uh, values, processes, and frameworks, right? So that, those are just the values, but at least it gives you an idea of the kind of people that are attracted to work at Nate. For the product, there are the design principles are a little bit different, but complementary. And so, for example, one design principle is that we want people to disengage as much as possible from checkout. And we have this concept of staying in flow. How do we allow the consumer to not break their flow? And flow is a borrowed word from yoga, which uh, I've been practicing yoga for years. And I love this idea of transitioning from one pose to another. So flow, not breaking your flow is is transitioning through different moments of your day without having to overstress or over-rationalize too much what's going on. So that's one of our design principles when we think about anything that we ship at Nate. And then a couple of other principles that we will never break. The first one is related to the AI conversation we had earlier, which is humans inspire, machines execute. And the second one is related to the privacy conversation we had, which is data belongs to people, not companies. So the product team operates based on those three principles. And in order to deliver them, they live on those other five principles that I mentioned earlier. So they're they're different, but they're quite complementary. Awesome. Well, Let's find a little bit more about Albert. You know, what, what's your favorite product? Ooh, outside of Nate, I guess, because I'm super biased, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe outside of Nate. I imagine Nate's one of your favorite products. But... Yes, no doubt, no doubt. I use Nate a lot, but also I'd say Uber. I really love Uber as a product. Specifically, I like this idea that before Uber, I used to have to think really hard about how to go from point A to point B in a city. So I would have to go somewhere I mean, right now we live on Zoom, so it's a little bit different, but I used to, you know, think, okay, so how am I getting there? Am I taking the bus? Am I driving? Am I taking the subway? Am I walking? You know, what am I doing? And I can still do those choices if I want to, but if I don't want to think about it, I can just press a button and then I can go there, right? And that peace of mind is so important to me. It's not that dissimilar from Nate, actually, if you think about it, in terms of like this concept of flow. I basically optimize for flow in my life. You know, what more friction can I reduce from my life so that I feel that I'm always in flow? And so Uber has been transformational for me because before Uber, I was super stressed about how I I was going places. And now I can still be in my kind of creative mindset and still kind of transport my body from one place to another. I like it. Final question. Three words to describe yourself. 
Actually, someone asked me this question recently, and I have a very fresh answer because I asked my team to help out with the answer. So I'm going to say inquisitive, caring, and resilient. Awesome. Well, thank you. It was a blast. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me, Eric. <laughs>